All opinions expressed in this podcast by participants are solely their opinions and do not reflect the opinion of BioVerge Inc. or its affiliates. The participants' opinions are based upon information they consider reliable, but neither BioVerge or its affiliates warrants its completeness or accuracy, and it should not be relied on as such. Nothing contained in and accompanying this podcast shall be construed as an offer to sell, a solicitation of an offer to buy, or a recommendation to purchase any security by BioVerge, its portfolio companies, or any third party. Past performance is not indicative of future results. You're listening to the BioVerge Podcast with Neil Litton. Neil, who do we have today? Today we have James Valentine on the show. I'm super excited to talk to James. Uh, so we're going to talk about the controversy over the FDA's recent approval of Aduhelm or Aducanumab. This is Biogen's therapy for Alzheimer's disease. Uh, Alzheimer's affects 6.2 million Americans. Uh, James is a senior associate at Hyman, Phillips, and McNamara. He's also a professor of food and drug law at the University of Maryland School of Law. Uh, and I think what's really interesting in terms of James's background is his regulatory expertise. James previously worked at the FDA in the Office of Health and Constituent Affairs. Uh, while he was at the FDA, he facilitate, facilitated patient input in benefit risk decision making. He also served as a liaison to multiple stakeholders on a wide range of regulatory policy issues. Uh, James also administered the FDA Patient Representative Program and helped launch the Patient Focused Drug Development Program, as well as the FDA Patient Network. So, as you can tell from James's background, I'm really excited to have him on the show today to learn more about how the FDA works with and incorporates the patient perspective into their decision making process and how that may have impacted the decision to approve a DoHelm. Neil, we recorded this interview at the start of July, but a, a number of things have happened since then. What's happened since then? That's right, Danny. I mean, this is a fast-moving saga, so more news seems to be coming out almost on a daily basis. So first of all, following uh, weeks of criticism around the broad label for aducanumab, uh, it was approved for anyone with Alzheimer's disease. The FDA is now narrowing the recommended window to patients uh, that have a milder form of the disease. Uh, on the surface, this seems to make a ton of sense and is much more aligned with the patient population that was included in Biogen's late-stage trials. Uh, second, uh, both Biogen and the FDA are now the subjects of a congressional probe uh, that's being led by the House Committee on Oversight and Reform. Uh, there's a, a lot of concern and speculation over the company's pricing tactics, as well as the FDA's approval process. I think lawmakers have raised concerns about the undue influence over the FDA's review process. So there's an ongoing uh, congressional probe around that. Uh, likely in response to this, uh, Janet Woodcock, who is the head of the FDA, has also called for an independent investigation into Biogen and FDA's relationship during the process that led to the approval. So Needless to say, things are really moving and evolving quickly. Uh, however, I believe the show that we recorded with James really hits the crucial points of the controversy head on. Uh, so excited, uh, excited to dive into that. Before we turn to James, 
why don't you just help listeners understand exactly what we're talking about with the drug? Yeah, I think I think that's that's will provide some good context, Danny. So aducanumab uh, specifically targets what are known as amyloid beta plaques that accumulate in the brain of Alzheimer's patients. Aducanumab, as the name implies, it ends in MAB, so it's a monoclonal antibody. The working hypothesis is that by targeting these plaques the, the, um, with the drug, you can actually destroy the plaque and slow down or stop the progression of the disease. Now, it's really important to note that even with a Duhelm's approval, there is no clear clinical evidence that targeting and destroying the plaque will stop or slow the progression of the disease. That's a super important point to keep in mind for the discussion with James, because uh, there is a specific regulatory pathway that FDA utilized to approve the drug despite the lack of evidence of the clinical benefit. So um, James and I will, will get into detail around that. Well, if there's nothing else, let's turn to James. Let's do it. Hi, James. I've really been looking forward to, uh, to this discussion. So first, I'd like to say a huge thanks for joining us today and welcome to the show. Well, thank you so much for having me. My pleasure. Today, we are going to talk about the controversy over the FDA's recent approval of aducanumab. This is Biogen's therapy for Alzheimer's disease, which, if I have my numbers right, affects 6.2 million Americans. It was a highly controversial approval, uh, and I want to dive into the approval, specifically the role of patient-focused drug development, uh, your thoughts around this topic, given your extensive experience, uh, which I think run counter to much of the criticism that's been captured in, the, in media uh, at the moment. Um, just for some quick background to help orient our listeners, aducanumab is the first new treatment approved for Alzheimer's since 2003. It's the first therapy that targets the fundamental pathophysiology of the disease, uh, specifically the amyloid beta plaque in the brain. Uh, much of the controversy that we're going to be talking about today surrounds the lack of clinical evidence and the approval based on a surrogate endpoint of reduction of amyloid beta plaque in the brain. So we're going to get into all of that with James. Uh, but first, uh, James, I I'd love to sort of take a step back and talk about um, the evolution of the FDA with regards to the patient perspective, uh, the role that plays uh, in its decision-making ability. You, you, you had worked at the FDA's Office of Special Health Issues. Can you talk a little bit about what that is and, and how that came about? Sure. And it's a good question. And it's uh, always fun to talk about particular FDA offices, given how frequently FDA is always reorganizing. Um, you know, so the, that particular office isn't even in existence uh, by that name today. But this office uh, was actually, you know, the very first uh, office or even function at FDA that was geared towards engaging with patient stakeholders. There was never before a, um, you know, a function for, you know, liaising or, or even talking to patient stakeholders. And so um, back in the 1980s during the HIV AIDS crisis, um, when so much activism was occurring and uh, many of us have have seen the the photos, or maybe we're even there when um, you know the AIDS activists with ACT UP you know surrounded FDA for a day and and essentially closed down uh, the agency um, to kind of protest uh, the the slow reviews and and lack of approvals for HIV AIDS. Um, that really you know caused FDA to to realize that you know uh, obviously you know patients were affected by their decisions. 
Um, but importantly, you know, that the needs of patients really should be considered. And so that led to the creation of the AIDS relation staff, which, you know, over time as FDA then began to engage with other patient communities, um, you know, breast cancer and other cancers kind of in the 90s and uh, eventually all uh, serious and life-threatening diseases, which, as you could imagine, is a really broad uh, capture of, of different conditions, um, that uh, AIDS relations staff became the Office of AIDS and Special Health Issues and eventually Office of Special Health Issues. Uh, today, it, it essentially resides in what is now the uh, Office of Patient Affairs within the Commissioner's Office. And uh, was because it was the first uh, patient engagement office to exist, it serviced all of the medical product centers across the agency. So when I was there, we were working uh, not only with the Center for Drug Evaluation and Research, but also in biologics and medical devices, you know, to help uh, bring patient stakeholders' voices to the table, either directly or indirectly, um, you know, so that way they they eat individually or kind of bringing information from their community uh, could could you know share their experiences and their preferences with the agency. So it sounds like th th this particular office has really expanded in scope over the years. Its role has evolved fairly significantly um, since the 80s. And, it, you know, it, it's, I think that this is all accumulated in the crafting of the commitment to patient-focused drug development, which became incorporated in PDUFA 5. Can you, can you talk a little bit about how that initiative has changed the way the FDA um, and the patient communities interact? Yeah, this uh, uh, kind of uh, evolution towards patient-focused drug development um, kind of reflects the overall evolution of patient engagement at the agency, which was one that was, you know, primarily focused on, um, you know, one being reactive, honestly, uh, doesn't wasn't just with the HIV-AIDS activists, but, um, you know, often FDA was reacting to when patients were bringing um, issues or considerations before them. Um, but it also was, you know, done primarily with individual, you know, patient stakeholders. Um, for example, FDA had the FDA Patient Representative Program, um, which allows patients to serve as uh, special government employees, serving on advisory committees. Um, you know, you've probably seen patient representatives uh, serve along with the medical and other scientific experts on committees, but also as consultants to the agency. And so with PFDD, you know, uh, after, you know, many years of having um, experience now across many of the review functions at FDA um, and seeing the value of, of, you know, what, you know, tapping into the expertise that patients provide in their own lived experience and about their own treatment goals, um, really at the, the direction of Dr. Janet Woodcock, who was at the time the, the Cedar Center director, of course, um, to, there was this idea that we should you know, the agency should be doing this more proactively. You know, there's many development programs that don't have a patient advocacy organization, you know, uh, knocking on the door to have a conversation. You know, FDA should be able to benefit from patient, the patient voice in these other disease areas. And it also should be more representative. You know, can we tap into, you know, uh, a larger proportion of the patient community and hear a range of voices? And so that's what we were considering when we were negotiating, uh, when I was at the agency, negotiating uh, the fifth reauthorization of PDUFA. And, uh, you know, the, the idea then was, you know, we recognized that FDA at the time of uh, approval decision needed to evaluate drug benefits and risks and make that benefit risk uh, kind of balance determination. 
and that you know there is no really there is no formula to apply to that so there is judgment involved and so uh, PFDD as we call it um, was designed to really help set the context for those benefit risk decisions through really what I consider a pilot you know through these PFDD meetings as just a way to demonstrate that you can solicit this type of patient input uh, that can really then uh, help set those uh, product, uh, the context for those product decisions. Yeah, th- thanks, James, for the, the context. I, I want to come back to the, the point that you mentioned around weighing the risks and, and benefits, because um, I think mm-hmm. that's really critical. So I, I do want to put a pin in that and come back. Um, I, I do want to shift gears a little bit and then now dive into the uh, approval of aducanumab, right? So the FDA granted accelerated approval to the drug. Um, I guess a couple of questions. I mean, first, do you think the FDA's recent experience with the COVID vaccines may have paved the way for them to be more comfortable with this type of accelerated approval uh, pathway in general? Um, and, and actually, before we even jump into that, maybe we can take a step back. And can you explain to our listeners the purpose of the accelerated approval pathway in general, how it works and, and how it's different from a, a full approval? Yeah, no, and it's this is a really important question um, because in the, the work that I do, um, in, in, you know, working in, in new drug and biologic development, you know, I think that there are actually some misconceptions about what exactly accelerated approval is. So, so accelerated approval is really a um, tool that helps expedite drug development in certain appropriate circumstances. So that's where you have a serious or life-threatening disease and you have an unmet medical need that could be addressed by a given therapy. And, you know, the way that it works is that rather than requiring a clinical program that studies the ultimate clinical benefit, particularly in, in slowly progressive diseases where it might, you know, take a really long time to show um, a, a treatment benefit of slowing or stopping that progression um, in order to see that between group difference. Uh, instead, in these cases, FDA's regulations allow the, uh, the agency to approve based off of a surrogate endpoint like a biomarker to serve as the basis of approval as long as that biomarker is, uh, you know, I'm using air quotes here, reasonably likely to predict. That's the the evidentiary standard and uh, it has to be reasonably likely to predict the ultimate clinical benefit. Um, you know, so uh, essentially it allows the showing of efficacy on a surrogate, which can occur sooner than of course the showing on the clinical benefit um, you know, allowing that approval to occur uh, in a more expedited uh, fashion um, by having those shorter trials. Uh, but the trade-off is, and as a condition of that approval, uh, the company must still conduct a, a post-approval study that will actually go on to confirm the ultimate clinical benefit. Okay, so I think th- this is, I think, really at the, the heart of a lot of the controversy. So, you know, as as many of our listeners probably know, right, aducanumab was approved despite the fact that an advisory committee, in this case, the Peripheral and Central Nervous System Drugs Advisory Committee, uh, right, which are, are experts in the field, found that there was no evidence um, supporting the approval, no, no clinical evidence supporting the approval. Um, so I think this is a large part of the, the controversy. And so, as you said, it, it, it sounds like the accelerated approval pathway even with lack of clinical evidence, can use this surrogate biomarker as a proxy for um, the drug's effectiveness. And one important thing is, you know, uh, not all surrogate endpoints are are the same under FDA's regulatory framework. 
Um, and so, you know, uh, there's certain examples where, uh, you know, drugs are approved and they get full approval, um, you know, based off of a validated surrogate endpoint. Um, not all surrogates are, you know, of the same kind of uh, regulatory magnitude in terms of supporting approvals. Um, you know, you can have validated surrogates, things like um, FEV1, which is a, a pulmonary uh, measure, surrogate endpoint for asthma uh, to get a full approval. Uh, or, for example, in hypercholesterolemia settings, you can measure serum LDL cholesterol and on that blood biomarker um, also get a full approval. And that's because these uh, endpoints are known uh, to predict the ultimate clinical benefit. Um, but what distinguishes that from accelerated approval is that uh, surrogate endpoints for accelerated approval are by definition unvalidated surrogates. And to me, this is a, a big misconception. You know, I, even with the Aduhelm approval, you know, I've, I've seen some quotes of some of the those criticizing the approval, including some advisory committee members that, you know, kind of balk at the amyloid reduction as, you know, uh, being approved on a, uh, a surrogate that's not validated. And in fact, that's not the, the regulatory uh, criteria for this type of surrogate. You know, so the, what that means is for accelerated approval, you can have a higher degree of uncertainty and lower predictive value um, because you only need to show that that surrogate is reasonably likely to predict. So, you know, what that means is if accelerated approval as, as an overall program works, we shouldn't expect all drugs approved based off of these unvalidated, unvalidated surrogates to actually have the clinical benefit be confirmed in the post-approval setting. You know, so with, with Aduhelm, it's really interesting, you know, so the law doesn't require that, you know, the amyloid beta reductions in the brain be so well established that they are known to predict clinical benefit. And you also don't need to show that clinical benefit directly at the time of approval. Um, but that's what, you know, some of the, the critics seem to imply. Um, you know, instead, you're in a situation where there is uncertainty. And so it's really going to be left up to patients and physicians to decide whether to take that drug. James, as you had mentioned before, I think the key here is the wording reasonably likely to predict under the accelerator approval pathway. Um, and, and so, you know, I think you, you had, you had um, stated that you find it actually contradictory to hear some critics in the F, you know, suggest that the FDA violated public trust in approving the drug. Um, can, can you explain what you what you meant by that, you know, in the context of this accelerated approval pathway? Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, as someone who's worked for 13 years, you know, my whole career as an advocate for patients to, you know, have this voice at the table, be able to contribute to the discussion around drug development and review, um, you know, first at FDA and, and now at the work that I do actually representing these patient communities, you know, it just struck me as very paternalistic to be having, you know, ultimately, you know, th these people who are physicians, um, although they identify themselves as public health or consumer advocates, to be asserting that their own discontent or, or disagreement with the decision, you know, should be raising a red, pla a red flag for the public, um, when ultimately, you know, it's the, the general public isn't the, the population that's going to have to bear either the benefits and risks of the marketed drug, you know, it's not the public that is going to have to deal with the consequences of a 
you know, potential type two error or, or said differently, a false negative, you know, finding or decision, um, you know, that a helpful drug would not be approved. You know, that really is going to be the patients, the people living with Alzheimer's and at risk for Alzheimer's, you know, and they're the ones that have to deal with the potential of, you know, continuing to, to experience cognitive, you know, decline and ultimately, you know, being at risk of losing, you know, their identities and their lives. So to me, it was just contradictory to have people claiming to represent the public interest and they would ignore the fact that you know, these patient, this patient community, the Alzheimer's community themselves had actually spoken out about whether this is something they'd be willing to tolerate. And, you know, based off of what FDA said around the approval, you know, it seemed to be real evidence-based informed input that they had received from patients. Yeah. And James, I want to go back to um, the, the, the point about sort of risks and benefits. And you had just mentioned type two errors. Um, and I, I want to dive into that because you've written pretty extensively um, about, you know, you know, how much uncertainty is acceptable. I, I think actually specifically in a, in a piece you stated, and I quote, when a disease is serious or life threatening and it has an unmet medical need because there are serious risks associated with not approving the drug, i.e. serious morbidity, oftentimes irreversible and progressive, and risk mortality, FDA must also balance the risk of making a type 2 error or false negative conclusions from the data in hand. Can you explain a little more what you mean by that? Sure. You know, so I think most um, of us in the scientific community and in the clinical research community you know, have have historically focused on type one error, um, which is the the error where we would uh, make a false positive conclusion. And so, you know, the whole paradigm is designed to, you know, test hypotheses to try to ensure that we're not making false positive conclusions. And, um, you know, so so when we, you know, evaluate drugs or we ask advisory committees to evaluate drugs, they're primarily focused on, you know, making sure that we don't approve a drug that doesn't actually work. But there are settings, and, and FDA's own regulatory framework uh, acknowledges this, that, you know, we should be balancing that consideration and, and protecting kind of the public health uh, by avoiding type 1 errors by also avoiding false negative or type 2 errors. And that is because of, of exactly what you quoted, you know, the, the alternative um, for these patients is actually quite serious harm. If we make the wrong decision and and uh, you know basically conclude that a drug doesn't work when in fact it does, and ultimately you know there's never a, a clear answer. I would say for almost any drug uh, that's approved, um, there's you know uh, no drug works for every patient, and you know the amount of certainty we have about you know the amount you know the the rate that a drug works for any population is also never 100 percent. And so it really always is this inherent balance between the two. And in these conditions where harm would be very great um, for a potential type two or, or false uh, negative conclusion, you know, we really should be more uh, kind of explicit in, in considering that. And, you know, it's something that, you know, I don't think is done routinely enough. Um, you know, and I think that's one place where patients can be advocates for themselves is to, you know, help make sure that decision makers, you know, are really contemplating that possibility. Yeah. And I think that, I think that's a really important 
important point here. Um, I want to go back to the role that patient input uh, may have played in setting the stage for for this approval. You know, you, you had done a really nice job laying out the history of the FDA, you know, through the patient interaction, through the, the, the HIV AIDS ec- epidemic. You know, I think in more recent history, the the um, approval that comes to mind is in Duchenne muscular dystrophy and the input of patient advocacies involved in, in, in the approval of, of that drug. And I think Janet Woodcock was heading the FDA at that time as well. Um, yes. But what role do you think the, the, the sort of patient input played in the in the aducanumab approval? Sure. So kind of uh, initial disclaimer is that I wasn't involved in um, this product or with the patient advocates in, in advocating around this product. So, you know, my reflections are kind of as an outsider. But, you know, what really stood out to me um, in looking at FDA statements around the approvals, uh, including their own review documents, um, were some consistent statements. Um, you know, I would say they, they primarily came from statements made by um, the head of the Office of New Drugs, Dr. Peter Stein, but certainly were reiterated in the joint Washington Post op-ed that was uh, co-authored by the Cedar Center director, Dr. Cavazzoni, as well as Dr. Stein and, and the head of the Office of Neuroscience, Dr. Dunn, um, where you know they discussed that they had met uh, with uh, representatives from the Alzheimer's disease patient community in an, a meeting type that's called a listening session. And during that meeting, those patient representatives shared their tolerance for less uh, less certainty of a treatment benefit. Um, and what was clear to FDA and what FDA articulated um, around making this approval decision was that they heard loud and clear that patients were willing to tolerate the inherent uncertainty that comes with an unvalidated surrogate endpoint, you know, what we were talking about before, one that's only reasonably likely to predict clinical benefit. And they knew that it was quite possible that clinical benefit would not be confirmed, which is you know, kind of at the core of accelerated approval. Um, so to me, this is important, you know, it, that it, because it helps FDA to know when it's actually appropriate to use tools like accelerated approval that, you know, apply some type of flexibility, but introduce greater uncertainty. Um, you know, it's not going to be appropriate for FDA to use those tools in every case. And so, you know, in my mind, who better to help FDA decide uh, whether or not to to use some tool in its toolbox um, than those who are ultimately going to bear the consequence of FDA's decision, which are, are of course, uh, the patients. You know, the only other thing I, I kind of want to add on this, thinking about, you know, the, the role that patients played, you know, sometimes, you know, and, and you, you hearken back to the uh, approval of a Teplerson for Duchenne muscular dystrophy, you know, sometimes what you see characterized in the press is, you know, patient in kind of patient input is called public pressure. And to me, you know, I think that's, you know, a gross overgeneralization and, and has a, you know, inappropriate connotation, um, you know, because really what I've seen, you know, uh, in, you know, over the last 13 years, you know, are, are patient advocates that, you know, are data driven, evidence driven. They very, you know, work with their community to really thoughtfully contemplate um, you know, benefits and risks and, and try to, you know, get a good idea of patients in their community's preferences. And then they present that in a way that really sets the context for FDA decisions. It really isn't, you know, what that term public pressure would imply, which is more of brute pressure to just try to force FDA's hand. 
You know, I, I think that's a really important distinction and clarification. You know, wh when I was um, a part of the California Institute for Regenerative Medicine, we had patient advocates at, at every stage of our process, including on the board, in uh, review panels, um, advisory committees, and things like that. And, and getting the patient perspective was always critical um, in terms of assessing the, the, the merits of, you know, providing grant funding to particular therapies. Um, and, and I think industry as a whole has really definitely embraced this idea of, you know, patient-centric drug development um, and having the patient's voice heard. So I, I think, I think absolutely, you know, we're moving in the right direction there. I guess, you know, my next question, you know, do, does, does this decision um, set a precedent going forward for how the FDA may be able to utilize this accelerated approval tool? Yeah. So, the, you know, it's kind of an interesting question. Um, you know, one is, you know, as I think back and look at the use of the accelerated approval tool, you know, obviously it goes back to the HIV AIDS days. Um, and now that that tool was helped, you know, helped HIV AIDS become a chronic disease. Um, you know, you look at its use extensively, you know, more so than in any other, you know, uh, medical area, uh, you know, is in cancer. And so you look at how far we've come along in kind of being able to treat so many different types of cancer. And even looking back, I think it was the second accelerated approval ever was in neurology, and that was beta seron for multiple sclerosis. You know, and if you look across all of those examples, you know, the same standard is being applied, um, you know, with these unvalidated surrogates. And, you know, none of the their use in any of those cases really changed the bar for approval. You know, one thing that I've done um, in, in some research is actually, you know, read all of the medical and statistical reviews um, for FDA approvals, specifically in rare diseases, um, but to look to see, you know, how FDA applies flexibility. And one thing that, you know, I've seen, you know, since uh, the introduction of the Orphan Drug Act, which is how far back we looked, um, was that FDA really, you know, is extremely consistent, you know, decade by decade in, you know, how frequently it uses uh, its tools for flexibility, including accelerated approval. So I don't have, uh, you know, any reason to believe from from seeing this approval decision, you know, I, nothing stands out to me as particularly unique compared to other accelerated approvals. And, you know, I, I don't think using it in Alzheimer's is going to change the landscape any more than when it was used for MS. And James, do you know, have any of the drugs that, that utilize this pathway uh, been, been removed from the market due to lack of, of further evidence? Yeah, so there, there uh, have been limited cases where um, you know, usually it's uh, the sponsor will voluntarily withdraw the product from the market. Um, but by and large, uh, that has not been uh, a tool widely used. Um, often what happens is it's uh, not a clear um, outcome of whether or not there's the ultimate clinical benefit. And so, you know, what we've been seeing is uh, kind of extensions or additional information being sought to try to help answer that question. And that's a, an in interesting point that you raise because, you know, to me, um, you know, as I'm thinking about accelerated approval, you know, a lot of, uh, of people, of course, are, are worried that this is, um, you know, there's a trend maybe to, to overuse a form of flexibility. 
But I had actually been, you know, seeing FDA um, maybe tighten its use of accelerated approval. And as, as someone who sees the value in that tool, um, was a little bit worried about that tightening. Um, and, and a lot of that had to do with the ability of um, FDA and sponsors doing these studies being able to uh, agree that, you know, to a confirmatory study, which is that study that's done in the post-approval setting, you know, to, to know that it will actually be designed in a way that would produce uh, interpretable data. Um, you know, we've seen kind of recently, you know, in October of last year, you know, CEDAR proposing withdrawal of McKenna. Um, we saw in April of this year, FDA's uh, Oncologic Drug Advisory Committee meeting to review a number of, of drugs with oncology indications. Um, you know, so it seemed to be a bit of a part of a broader evaluation of accelerated approvals in oncology. You know, so when I, I look at that, you know, Aduhelm approval, you know, it actually does give me some confidence that, you know, senior leaders within FDA, you know, believe that there is a way that we can, you know, uh, design these confirmatory studies so that they will be interpretable. Mm-hmm. And and so that, I think that's a good segue into you know, what, what does Biogen need to do in terms of a confirmatory study? Um, it, so it, would this be considered a phase four trial that they would be conducting? Yes. So uh, in in any accelerated approval, what will happen is um, usually oftentimes uh, these po- phase four um, kind of they're referred to as confirmatory studies because they're confirming that ultimate uh, clinical benefit. Um, those studies are either negotiated with FDA uh, prior to the approval and are oftentimes actually initiated uh, with recruitment starting prior to the approval. Um, and in other cases, you know, perhaps where you know, the approval uh, or the path to an accelerated approval was not clear prior to the drug getting approved, which may be the case for Aduhelm, um, that uh, confirmatory study is actually you know, the specifics of it are negotiated even after the approval. Um, but what you'll see in any accelerated approval approval letter uh, is a requirement for that post-approval study. And so, you know, here Biogen, um, you know, has certain milestones that they have to meet for drafting a protocol, submitting a final protocol, and completing a, the that clinical trial um, as a condition of their approval. Mm-hmm. M- makes sense. And um, so, it, you know, it really sounds like there, there's, uh, you know, a lot of concern in the media, in the in the public domain of, you know, a, a sort of backlash of sorts. You know, there's a lot of speculation that this will lower the regulatory bar uh, for others. It's endangering, you know, public safety. Um, so it, 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 it sounds like, you know, this accelerated approval pathway is something that has always been in the, in the, in the you know, uh, tool belt of the FDA. It's something the FDA has used uh, many times uh, over the years and over the decades. Um, it does come with, you know, certain, um, certain laws regarding approval, as, as we talked about um, in terms of, um, you know, surrogate endpoints and things like that. I mean, do you, do you at any way view this approval of, of, you know, fundamentally changing or altering the, the FDA standards in, it, in any way whatsoever? As I kind of talked about with the, the history of use of, of accelerated approval, and it really has been an application of the, that same standard, which I think is just not well you know, universally not well uh, understood that reasonably likely to predict um, evidentiary kind of standard. Um, you know, so to me, you know, I think 
hopefully, if anything, you know, the uh, public spotlight on this, you know, might be able to create an opportunity, you know, for for FDA and and even industry uh, and patient stakeholders to help kind of educate, you know, the general public about, you know, what exactly is accelerated approval. You know, it, I, it obviously in its own name, you know, isn't inherently descriptive of what it means, you know, perhaps compared to like conditional approval in Europe, um, which kind of makes its name makes a little bit more sense. The other thing is, I think, you know, part of this is where there's just so much more experience with using accelerated approval in oncology. And even though I did mention, you know, beta seron for MS, you know, largely, you know, uh, you know, use of accelerated approval has been almost exclusively in oncology. So perhaps this is a chance for us to also, you know, pull back the curtain on those cancer drug approvals, you know, and and use that where I think people really are comfortable with accelerated approval and the the uncertainty tied to, you know, accelerated approvals. And I think, you know, inherently people understand that cancer patients are willing to take on a lot of risk, you know, maybe apply that, you know, something that's relatable um, now to these other conditions, you know, Alzheimer's, you know, other neurodegenerative conditions and beyond. Yeah, and, and I couldn't agree more. I mean, I you know, people have heard me sort of harp on this idea of, you know, Operation Warp Speed with, with COVID and look how effective that was. Why don't we have something similar for all of these types of, you know, devastating yes. diseases that have, you know, our unmet medical needs. So, you know, maybe this is a, a step in that direction. So, James, uh, with that, you know, I think we could probably spend the next two days <laughs> talking about <laughs> yes. some of the nuances here, but I think we'll, we'll, we'll call it a day. And I want to thank you for your insights and, and your time and for joining me on the show today. Yeah, well, thank you for having me. Well, Neil, what did you think? I thought that was an awesome discussion with James. So just to to recap, what I heard was, uh, and I think this is really the critical point, that the FDA used one of the tools in their arsenal. It's called the Accelerator Approval Pathway. It allows the FDA to approve drugs based on a surrogate endpoint that is, and I'm quoting, reasonably likely to predict clinical benefit. So that's how and why a Duhelm was approved despite the lack of clinical evidence. And that is what a lot of the controversy is, is wrapped up. Now, this approval pathway um, has certainly garnered a ton of media attention, but it's not the first time the FDA has utilized this pathway. And you heard James talk about the history of the FDA um, working with patient advocacy groups, how they incorporate the patient perspective into their risk assessment and decision-making process. Uh, you talked about uh, you heard James talk about some other approvals in the oncology space and a drug for Duchenne muscular dystrophy more recently. So you know clearly things are still unfolding when it comes to a Duhelm. But what is really clear to me is that this approval will certainly drive increased investment in the space from both pharma, biotech, and investors, and may very well lead to the development of a much more efficacious drug in the future. So to me. It's a huge net positive for patients at the end of the day. I think the jury's still out about the the ultimate clinical benefits of uh, aducanumab. But overall, I think the increased awareness it's bringing to the sector, the increased um, appetite for other companies to develop new drugs, I think will ultimately be a net positive. How much of this do you think was driven by just a, a fundamental lack of understanding among the public about this mechanism that the FDA used? 
Well, I think that's a that's a large part of it. So you heard James talk in in detail about the accelerated pathway mechanism, how and why that allowed for uh, the approval of a Duhelm that did not have a clear clinical benefit, um, but the pathway allows for that based on these these surrogate you know endpoints. Um, so I, I I think a lot of controversy is around the misunderstanding of how the drug was approved, but you know there's also a lot of um, criticism around the pricing of the drug. You know, this is not an orphan disease. There's over 6 million Americans that have Alzheimer's. So I think there's a lot of concern around, you know, the Medicare and insurers paying for a drug that may not be effective and the ultimate cost to society. That's not that we didn't get into that type of detail um, in discussion with James in regards to pricing. I think that's a really critical issue. And, and actually, that's something I'd love to say for another uh, another episode. Bottom line, do you think this is going to raise the bar in the future for the FDA in approving drugs on this basis? Or do you think this opens the door for more approvals like that? My hope is that it opens the door for more widespread use of the accelerated approval pathway, you know, particularly for diseases uh, that have no viable treatment alternatives that are unmet medical needs. You know, clearly there's a tremendous amount of backlash uh, at the moment. Um, and there's, you know, there are congressional you know, um, probes going on. There's a whole lot of concern around uh, this approval in particular. So, you know, I think the jury's still out about how this will affect what the FDA does going forward. But I think it was a pretty clear signal that the FDA uh, is not a, not afraid to use this tool in their arsenal to to approve drugs. Well, until next time. Thanks, Danny. Thanks for listening. The BioVerge podcast is a product of BioVerge Inc., investment platform that funds visionary entrepreneurs with the aim of transforming healthcare. BioVerge provides access and enables everyone to invest in highly vetted healthcare startups on the cutting edge of innovation. From family offices and registered investment advisors to accredited and non-accredited individuals. To learn more, go to BioVerge.com. This podcast is produced for BioVerge by the Levine Media Group. Music for this podcast is provided courtesy of the Jonah Levine Collective.